As some of you may know, my wife Jenny studied archaeology in college. Uh, for two summers, she dug in Jordan at a place called Tel Jawa, which is about six miles south of the capital of Amman. When she first told me that she had been an archaeologist, I had images of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark going through my mind. But as I learned, archaeology is far less glamorous and adventurous than that. It's hot days digging in the desert sand, reassembling broken pottery, digging through ancient trash piles, reconstructing what life would have been like thousands of years ago. And Jenny did have one big discovery at her time there. On her second summer in Jordan, Jenny discovered a city gate, what they call a four-chamber gate, of an ancient city that dated from around 1200 to 1000 BCE. That's about 3,000 years old. She tells me that in archaeology, gates are a big deal and they are very important. They tell us the location of the boundaries of the city and the city walls. It helps recreate what daily life must have been like in the city, who was going and who was coming, what and who they were bringing with them. Uh, this picture is, uh, are the remains of a six-chamber gate in Israel from a similar time period. I think when you and I probably imagine city gates, what we think of most often comes from movies and fairy tales. We imagine a single opening with a drawbridge and retractable metal gate and a couple soldiers standing at attention, sort of like the Disney logo, minus the soldiers. But gates were different back in the ancient Near East about 3,000 years ago. They were large complexes with several different chambers or rooms. So when you approached a city, you would walk up a narrow road up to the city gate, which was built right into the city wall. And as you walked in, you would see two or three chambers on either side. If you were allowed to enter the city, that's where you would pay your entry fee. If you weren't allowed in, if you were a foreigner, and gates were mainly places for foreigners, you could do all of your business within the gate, within those rooms. There were places that you could trade your goods. There were tax collectors. There were judges in the gates who would have hearings and resolve disputes, sort of like a small claims court. Rather than just pass-throughs, these gates were bustling centers of commerce all around the edges of the city. And these are exactly the kind of gates that the prophet Amos would have known about when he lived, just about a few hundred years later, around 750 BCE. Amos started his life as a rancher and an arborist, but God called him to become a prophet, to pronounce judgment to the kingdom of Israel, and to call them to repentance. He spoke on behalf of God to the king, to the politically powerful, the wealthy and well-connected, and to the religious establishment. Now, Amos prophesied at a particularly prosperous time in the life of Israel, but despite the trappings of power and affluence, there were great injustices and inequities happening at Israel at the time. Uh, and the city gates, these public squares, were sort of a microcosm for Amos of this injustice. He writes in our first reading that in these gates, the innocent were afflicted, their food stolen, the needy were pushed aside, judges and soldiers and tax collectors were bribed so that people could get their way. Amos says they had turned justice to wormwood into a bitter plant, a poison. Those who spoke the truth in the gates were reviled and abhorred. He said what was happening in the gates was a symptom of something much larger. 
And so when Amos calls Israel to hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, he's not just talking about that particular gate, but about the entire city. And not just the city, but the entire nation. And not just the nation, but the entire world. I like what one commentator writes about our reading from Amos. He says, God was very interested in what happened in the gate because it was the key public arena for negotiating fairness, compassion, and social order in accord with the values, nature, and history of God and God's people. God was very interested in what was going on in the gates. And God is still very interested in what happens at our gates. And God's call for justice pushes the church into places where fairness and compassion and social order are determined today, into the public square, not in order to speak for one political persuasion or another or one ideology or another, but to insist on justice, justice for the very least among us. It's part of our baptismal covenant to be part of God's mission for the world, to care for others and the world God made, to work for justice and peace. And so in Amos' time, if you wanted to take the temperature to judge the health of a people or a nation, you looked to their city gates. And today, our gates are different. They are emergency rooms and classrooms and campuses and courtrooms and cities and borders and main streets. Like the city gates of Amos' time, they reveal to us whether we are living up to God's desire for justice. It doesn't take much to imagine or to see how Amos still might speak to us today. Amos describes our country and our world today in the ways in which injustice and equality in the absence of truth-telling have caught up with us in some ways. Just the news in the last week has been heartbreaking. Three school shootings in one day last week, warnings at local Philadelphia-area campuses, an average of one mass shooting a day for this calendar year, Student debt has exceeded credit card debt for the first time in our country. Protests at mosques around the country yesterday. Violence and hateful rhetoric and racism. Refugee children washed up on beaches. Uh, And the news that just 158 families are responsible for half of the giving in this presidential election cycle. 158 families for almost half of the giving to political candidates. And we won't all agree on why those things are or how to fix those things, but we can behold the inequities that are there and the sadness we hold for them. Now, Amos's message to us is that part of our response in these difficult times should not just be lament, sorrow, and sadness, but also repentance. <laughs> Repentance, a turning around from a change in our own behavior, which has helped to land us here. We need to own up to the things that we have done or not done for the least of these. And Amos asks us how far we are willing to go in the love of our neighbor, not just from afar, not just in prayer, not just from the pulpit or inside these walls, but speaking and working in the world for truth and justice. It has seemed to me over the last many weeks that we have somehow become numb to the suffering of others. We have reconciled ourselves to the fact that there will simply be casualties of violence. We have almost accepted them as inevitable. We blame what other, whatever perceived si- other side there is, and while we are busy blaming and pointing fingers and recriminating, people continue to suffer 
We have a kind of paralysis due to polarization. And in a weird way, that sort of works for us because it keeps us distant. It becomes somebody else's fault and somebody else's responsibility to fix. And any solutions or actions that we contemplate somehow seem inadequate because the problem seems so, so big and we sense ourselves as powerless. Now, I don't know whether I got this from Edwin Friedman's family systems theory or the theologian Peter Rollins or Dr. Phil, um, and they'd all find it comical to be included in the same phrase. Um, But basically, the theory and the idea is that although we say we want a different world, oftentimes the actions uh, that we take tell a different story. We have the world that we want in the sense that we have the world that we have created. We say we want a different world, but our actions or inactions say otherwise. This is, in fact, the world that we have created, or at least accepted. And I think in this we are so much like the rich man in our gospel reading today, whom Jesus tells to sell all he has and give to the poor, and the man can't do it, and he goes away grieving. And Jesus says that it's easier for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven or or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. But what strikes me most about this passage, I think, is that Jesus has such compassion on this man. The scriptures say that Jesus looked on him with love. Jesus has compassion on this man who found it impossible to part with his privilege. The scripture says Jesus looked on him with love. Jesus looks on us with love in the midst of our confusion and sorrow as well as our indifference to suffering. It's a love, I think, that author Anne Lamott captures best when she says, God loves you just the way you are and God loves you too much to let you stay that way. In the love of God, we are freed from our paralysis to love and to serve both in ways big and small, and help and save our neighbors who are eviscerated by inequality and racism and hate and prejudice and violence, those who are weak, those who are the other, the very same people that Pope Francis called us to help and love just a couple weeks ago. He just had a better bedside manner about it than Amos, (laughs) or maybe me. (laughs) Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Jesus loved his earnestness and his eagerness to do what is right, despite his inability to do it. And today, we stand face to face with Jesus in our scripture, Jesus who, along with Amos, calls us to justice. And we don't know how to do it, and we don't know if we want to do it. We stand face to face with Jesus, and there is this morning the same kind of ambiguity and conviction and challenge and grief and love that the Bible paints in this scene with the man. There's a moment that captures what one preacher calls the peril and the promise of meeting Jesus. The peril to follow Jesus and stand for justice and the promise that he loves us no matter what. Our text this morning brings us to this profoundly uncomfortable and yet somehow comforting moment. Uncomfortable in that Jesus is calling us to go beyond ourselves and comforting in that our work is commanded by God, and that the work we do is not to earn Jesus' love, but in response to that love, mindful that once we were no account, and still we are claimed by God. 
And so this morning, we hold all of this, the call to do what is right, the fear for trying, our uncertainty about whether we should and how we should and how it will all work out. Our text this morning invite us into this hard place of this encounter between the man and Jesus coming face to face and asking what that means for us today. What are our gates? What are we to do? And our gospel reading holds out hope for us. For it says, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible, Jesus says. For God, all things are possible. For what seems impossible to us, what seems to us irreparably broken in us and in our world, can be fixed and can be healed and can be redeemed in God. And as we stand here face to face with one another and with Jesus, who looks on us with love, may God give us the courage and the heart to hate evil and to love good and to establish justice in the gate. Amen.